Hello, I'm Lulu. Hello, I'm Lulu's mother, Sandra, and this is Inside the Jewel Box. Inside the Jewel Box is a podcast in which my mother and I meet with fascinating people from Aotearoa and inquire into the objects that give meaning to their lives. The objects in my home have always been imbued with magical powers. The teapots, tabaibai, rings, brooches, punamu are portals into worlds both known and unknown to me. They're not just objects, they're talisman, taonga, memento mori, keepsakes, and to my dad, they're stuff that matters. But it wasn't until I was 26 years old, I started asking proper questions about these objects. Through these conversations with my family, I understood them in a way I hadn't before. I felt closer to them. My family are private people. The story of the objects they, and most of us really, hold dear, often remain invisible. These stories live and die with us. When my darling daughter suggested a podcast about the objects that give our lives meaning, I told her I'd love to hear the stories of these objects that people hold close. Before we start this episode, we want to say thank you to everyone who listened to our pilot episode and sent us lovely messages. One of our favourite messages was from one of the stars of our pilot episode, Jane Dodd herself. I'm going to pass over to Sandra to read the message from Jane. Kia ora, Lulu and Sandy. Thank you so much for including the hoo-hoo brooch in your podcast, Inside the Jewel Box. I enjoyed your comments and thoughts on my work and practice enormously. But as I listened, a nag started in my brain. Someone found a hoo-hoo. It took me a while to remember it was my dear friend and jewellery colleague, Anna Wallace. She found a hoo-hoo brooch on the street somewhere around Otago Farmer's Market. But this was some time after I'd made the replacement for Sandy with the safety catch. So I didn't think too much about it, frankly, until I heard your podcast. So I got the piece off Anna. It was pretty munted. The pearls are scuffed and the pin was bent all out of shape. So I remade the pin part and tried to tidy it up. But this is, I feel sure, your hoo-hoo. Where it had been in the intervening time is a mystery. If only it could talk, it would have an adventure to tell. But how amazing to be found by one of the few people on the planet who would know what it was and exactly who made it. Spooky. Now you have two. Love, Jane. So thank you so much again, Jane and Anna. Our lost hoo-hoo has crawled its way home. Our guest for episode one is Dr. Bronwyn Lloyd. Bronwyn is a crafter and art writer who lives in Myringi Bay, Tamaki, Makoto, Auckland. She works one day a week at Object Space, researching Warwick Freeman's jewellery practice in the lead-up to a survey show of his work in 2025. The rest of the time she is engaged in two absorbing slow crafting projects, decorating a modernist doll's house and producing a body of textile works called The Happiness Index that showcases a variety of vintage handcraft techniques. 
Bronwyn, tell us about your first object and why you chose it. The piece I've chosen here is called Sunbird and it's a pendant by Warwick Freeman, made in 2021. Uh, the reason I chose it was because it fitted into the category of a, an object I worked hard to get. Sunbird is a very pared down, stylized bird form. It's made out of concretion, which is an ancient sediment that work, sort of an ancient um, substance that's formed in sedimentary rock. And Warwick found a chunk of concretion in the Kuiper many years ago and has been waiting to use it. Um, he often does that with various rocks and materials and minerals that he has in his studio. He'd been waiting to you know, for the right form to suggest itself. It's a beautiful golden colour and um, the body of work that he produced that included Sunbird was called Closer to the Sun um, for Anna Miles Gallery in 2021. And so this bird is has a sort of bulb-shaped body that sort of tapers down into a sort of very long neck, a tiny little bulb-shaped head that has a hole pierced in it for an eye. Um, so it's just the suggestion of a face. And then it has a lovely sort of blunted, slightly blunted beak form. It has no wings. It has no other detailing on it. There's no texture to it. It's a beautiful, smooth, cool to the touch, just a gorgeous, smooth, sort of bulb-shaped object. Um, I was really drawn to it because... Auckland had been in this long period of lockdown and we were just coming out of it and Warwick's show was going to be the first show that Anna had had coming out of lockdown. She sent out the um, flyer about the exhibition and she sent out the catalogue of works and I scrolled through it and I just I just sort of was stunned when I came to Sunbird. I, you know, sometimes you, you see an object and you just, it takes your breath away. It just seems so perfect. And something about it, I think at that time, you know, we were all so sort of housebound and grumpy and just desperate to get among people again and to have experiences with people and with art. And for me, I was just so ready to rejoin the world. For something about this form of this little bear bird, it seemed to me like it was in the state of becoming. It just seemed like it was just emerging from something. And so in that the context of that end of lockdown, it just seemed like the perfect object. And so I lay awake all night after I'd seen this. I couldn't sleep. I just loved this bird so much. I hadn't seen it in the flesh, but I loved it so much. And I waited until 6, I think 6.15 to email Anna. <laughs> and I said to her, uh, I just emailed her and I said, Anna, I think I've fallen in love with some bird. Is is it still available? And of course the show hadn't even opened and so it was available. But um, And she wrote back, I think, an hour and a half later, so sort of 7.30ish or so, and said, yes, it is, and, you know, it will be perfect for you. And um, the show physically opened a couple of days later. I went in and, and she, she she took some bird out of the cabinet and I just... It felt like Yeah, it, it just, just, I just love, I love this bird. The interesting thing about it, though, um, about six months later, I came to be working at Object Space, and my job is um, putting together an archive of Warwick Freeman's 
work for a big survey show that he's having in 2025 in Munich. Um, and I had a meeting, my first meeting with Warwick, I was wearing Sunbird, and he walked in and saw it, and he said, he laughed, and he said, ha ha, I see he's still hurtling towards oblivion. <laughs> and I said, what? And he said, Icarus. And oh. of course, closer to the sun, because I recognised then that in the title for the show, To the Sun, was in brackets. And so it was about hubris. The exhibition and the body of works were about hubris. <laughs> and it was about, this is Icarus, hurtling towards oblivion. Um, his wings have burned off. Uh, he's you're about to crash into the sea. And the only thing that prevents that is, is the, the um, cord tied through him that, that suspends it around my neck to stop him falling into the sea. And I said to Warwick, I, I was like, I can't believe it. it's Icarus. I can't believe it. And um, and so for me, it was a real, it was an interesting story because for me, it was about this object in the process of becoming. It was full of promise. It was it was uh, full of new life and what was going to come and this golden, beautiful, radiant little object. Mm -hmm. For Warwick, it was about hubris, flying too close to the sun. It was about being arrogant or it was about, um, you know, things that can come a cropper. And that's when I thought, well, it doesn't matter. So for me, it means something, one thing. For Warwick, it means another. And... The moment a work leaves an artist's studio, it can mean whatever. And so for me, it's still this beautiful object full of promise, but it has this other this other reading. But perhaps it gives the wearer a very active role. Because yes. in putting it around your neck, mm. you are saving it yes. from oblivion. That's exactly the way I see it too. Yes. So I have a very optimistic view of this piece um, which is why I love it so much I just and and so for me it's like I can do this for Warwick's you know pendant I can suspend it I can keep it from crashing into the sea. <laughs> and when when do you choose to wear your Oh, well, I wear, I wear Sunbird frequently. Mm -hmm. um, he can be worn sort of tucked inside a garment and it's a really lovely sort of feeling, you know, just to have this beautiful ancient stone sort of against you, uh, against your skin. Um, or I'll wear it um, over a kind of, yeah, just generally a black, tend to be a black blouse or top, yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I wear, I always wear, yeah, I wear everything I I have in my collection because I think that's what objects are made for. Let's do a deep dive on Warwick Freeman. On the 22nd of November 1974, five young jewellers opened fingers at Aotearoa's first contemporary jewellery gallery at Six Lawn Street, Central Auckland. In 1978, Warwick Freeman became a member of Fingers and a contributor to the Bone, Stone and Shell movement. In eschewing diamonds, gold and semi-precious stones, and in the embrace of natural materials, referencing Maori and Pacifica body adornment traditions, as part of this movement, Freeman and his contemporaries created a jewellery of place that both spoke to and created a new generation of collectors. Over a stellar 45-year career, Freeman has individually 
created a plethora of signs, symbols, emblems and faces that constitute their own ever-expanding pictographic alphabet. He is the master of things that represent things. Stars and hearts, ferns and roses, birds and planes, crosses and kuru, butterflies and fish. His brooches, rings, pendants, alongside the plinths, lamps and candle holders, all demonstrate a stubborn specificity in the use of natural materials. The materials, silver, punamu, scoria, power, gold, rocks, are of this place. These are works speaking with a forceful economy about the complexity of identity in Aotearoa's indigenous and settler worlds. Freeman says of his work that, There are tricks to be found in every material. The sense that possibilities are lurking there, waiting for promotion as jewellery ideas. I'm always looking for the right mix of ambiguity and the obvious. Since 1989, Freeman has exhibited in Europe, the US, Australia and in Aotearoa. His work is held in public and private collections globally, including the National Gallery of Australia, the Powerhouse Museum Sydney, Auckland Museum, the Dallas Art Gallery Museum Lower Hutt, the Pinakothek de Moderne Munich, the Schmuck Museum in Forsheim, and the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. His international standing was recognised by the Francois van der Bosch Foundation, based at the Stedelijk Museum in the Netherlands, who named him their 2022 Laureate. In the same year, he received an Arts Foundation Laureate Award. He was the featured master at the German Contemporary Festival Schmuck in 2013. Freeman remains a fingers artist as well as being represented by the National Gallery in Tahi Christchurch, Avid in Tafonganui, Atara, Wellington, and Anna Miles Gallery, Auckland. Freeman was born in Nelson, and he lives in Auckland. So what is our second object, and why did you choose it? Okay, the second object is a miniature candle holder um, made out of porcelain, with, and it's by... Um, Christchurch artist, Littleton artist, Nicola Shanley. Why I chose it, that requires a tiny bit of backstory, but um, Nicola and I met about five years ago when I was interviewing her for an exhibition, a solo exhibition she was having at the National for a small publication. And we met and immediately just fell in love. She just, it was just, she was just, I, yeah, we just knew that we were just going to be great friends. Oh. It was just wonderful. And we just started gabbling on immediately and it was just great she's just she's one of those amazing rare souls um just a true creative slightly eccentric beautiful beautiful person um who just lives and breathes art and aesthetics and we actually met at um Ing Boutique in Christchurch, uh, which is that beautiful sort of bespoke clothing store, which now sadly doesn't exist anymore. Um, and 
as we were wandering around, you know, Nicola would start cuddling the shoes, and um, and she was just she would just throw her arms around all of the garments, and she just she just loves, you know, she just forms such a strong, passionate relation to objects, articles of adornment, and clothing, and it's just part of her just a huge part of her and so I learned a lot from her about um you know beautiful bespoke handmade items um so it's been a wonderful friendship and we sort of um keep in touch and uh, mainly through our messaging on Instagram but uh, one time we were just sort of shooting the breeze on Instagram and I said to her that um I was just feeling really frustrated and all I actually wanted to be doing was making a doll's house for these two um, vintage wooden dolls that I have. And she just wrote back immediately and said, that's exactly what you must be doing <laughs> right now. Get on with it. Of course you should be. There's nothing else. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I mean, firstly, I'd never told anybody that I had been wanting to make a doll's house. It's something I'd, I'd never had a doll's house when I was growing up. But the two books that hugely influenced me were two books by Ruma Godden. Um, one was called Miss Happiness and Miss Flower, and the other was called The Doll's House. And they were both about children constructing doll's houses with incredible detail about how they went around about making all the little things for the doll's house. And um, and I, these books have just stayed with me my entire life, and I've really wanted to make a doll's house ever since. But I had been slightly embarrassed about ever admitting that because I remember reading about the Doll's House collection of, of Vivian Green, who was married to the famous novelist Graham Green, and uh, he treated her terribly. And um, so all these people started theorising about why she became an avid Doll's House collector, and they sort of said it was about trying to make a perfect home and to create the sort of home that she never had with her husband and all this sort of... And people overread, and it was just sort of really laboured. And I sort of thought, ooh, you know, like, sometimes it's just about loving these little miniature worlds that you're creating. And I'm sure that that was the case for Vivian, and but it was all overlaid with all this sort of... Oh, horrible stuff and and so I'd sort of never sort of spoken aloud why I wanted to make a doll's house and so when Nicola sort of said you must she sort of really just gave me uh, sort of validated this sort of desire that I'd had and so I set about it and started you know putting together um, a doll's house and um, making little quilts and soft furnishings and and things and then a few months later a little parcel arrived um on my front doorstep and it was a it was addressed to the dolls um who were called Sylvie and Valentine so it was to Sylvie and Valentine at the pink house with the red steps in Myrangi Bay <laughs> and um and there it was, and inside it was this object, which is this little candle holder, which is a little porcelain dark with with a sort of dark glaze on it, and it's got two heads um, with little open mouths, sort of two little beseeching faces at either end, and then in the centre, the hole, and Nicola had a little beeswax candle that she'd put inside for me. Um, and... Also, with the parcel, there were these other tiny little, <laughs> tiny little nodules, which in fact 
I subsequently found out were the candle holders that she'd made. And I think she'd actually made the two-headed one for me, but these tiny little nodgly ones for the doll's house. But I thought they were tiny little plants. (laughs) (laughs) And because they're actually slightly out of scale. They're too small for the size of dolls that I have. But the two-headed one was perfect scale for the doll's house. And so that is the one I use in the doll's house. And I use the other little ones as little plants. (laughs) And you loved that? I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I thought... um, I just thought it was the sweetest thing, you know, that she had sort of said, you need to be making this doll's house and here's, you know, here's something for it. And do, do you sometimes light the candles? Yes, I do. I'm just slightly scared of setting fire to the roof of the doll's house. Um, but I do light the candle. Um, if I come in here in the evening, I'll set up the candles for, for the dolls in the house um, and illuminate their rooms a bit. Yeah. Can you just describe the dollhouse that's sitting behind you right now because it is beautiful. Sure, it's a work in progress so I still haven't painted it um, which is going to be a summer job. Um, uh, it's basically a it's a kit set doll's house. I didn't want a fussy Victorian doll's house, those have never appealed to me at all. Also the two dolls I have are um, wooden dolls but they're actually about the height of Barbie dolls so they're about 30 centimetres high so they're bigger than normal doll's house um, things, objects. Uh, And so um, I found, I searched high and low for the kind of, I wanted a sort of modernist doll's house, something really simple and open plan. (laughs) But there didn't seem to be one anywhere. I did get in touch with a few people I thought might be able to make me one, but they didn't, they weren't able to. And then I saw online this this Greek maker called Nick, Nicholas Malingos and um, he makes these uh, kit set modernist dolls houses for Barbies uh, with these lovely slide. these are actually sliding doors that will go in the front um, that I'm using as windows at the moment and they're basically just very simple it takes 15 minutes to assemble them um, they just flat pack um, just marine ply um, that have been cut out using laser and uh, they're just big open plan rooms, which is exactly what I wanted. And so at the moment I've got one larger room that is the kitchen and the lounge and upstairs a bedroom. And But I realised I wanted, I've got so much furniture and bits and bobs still to go in it that I've just ordered another room so that they can have um, a separate lounge, which will mean I can put the fireplace in. It's got a slightly arts and crafts. Yes. Is that intentional? Yes, it's very, um, I mean, I'm very inspired by Bloomsbury um, sort of aesthetics. And so I wanted lots of, I've made little rugs, um, little quilts and that kind of thing. But I didn't want it to look, yeah, so it's still kind of modernist in in its styling. I think, but um, but with arts and crafts vibes. <laughs> and you said um, now that you, some of your friends do know that yes. you're doing this. You've been given. Yes. So um, so yeah, other people are as have sort of sent me things. A, a lovely woman called Rachel Bell uh, got in touch with me. She's a jeweller, and she said that she's she's knitted some um, tiny little dishcloths that she wants to pop in, um, and give me. And uh, a little friend. Um, a friend 
the daughter of a friend of mine um, has made a little woven rug, which is actually in my... I've got a second doll's house, which has just been started, a Japanese doll's house, which so the little rug is in there. Um, and I've started doing things like if I see any miniature things for sale, like this is made by the Brickles um, out at... Um, in Coromandel um, and this was in their Brickle Brack sale recently and I saw this little vase and I thought that's got to go in there so yeah so th it's being added to with lovely little bits and bobs and eventually I think there'll be quite a nice collection of, of objects. Now time for a deep dive on Nicola Shanley. I think the most interesting objects embody conflicting tensions we are witnesses to a collision of the grotesque and beautiful. These kinds of work are disruptive and fragment the expected order of things. The resulting disorder mesmerises. I breathe in with horror. I breathe out with delight. Nicola Shanley creates such things. We may describe the things Shanley makes as plates, vases, lamps, jugs, candle holders and scarves. But her creations are not domestic, as these descriptors might suggest. Instead, using dark palettes, distinctive textures, ancient and alien themes, Shanley's creations are the furniture of a strange anti-reality world, populated by dark fantasies, rituals, dreams and nightmares. With names like black animal head on brown body, bird skeleton at rest and fortified casket with bricks, I am asked to navigate a beguiling shadow world. In 1995, Shanley completed a Bachelor of Visual Arts, majoring in printmaking. She then moved to Ortipoti, Dunedin, where her practice moved to working with clay. She now works from her home studio in Littleton. Shanley is represented by the Brett McDowell Gallery in Ortipoti, Dunedin, Shanley's work has been exhibited across Aotearoa as well, including at Space Studio, both the Quartz Museum and Sargent Gallery in Whanganui, and group shows at City Gallery, Te Uru, Waitakere, Object Space and the Douse Art Museum. So Bronwyn, why did you choose the third object we're going to talk about? Um, this is a a piece uh, that I commissioned. It's a coat that's made by a uh, Korean-born New Zealand artist, Stephen Junil Park, who's a he's a craft extraordinaire based in Ōtautahi Christchurch. And I have been following his work for some years, actually introduced to him by Nicola Shanley at that mm -hmm. visit when I first met her at when Stephen was then working at at the NG Boutique, um, and uh, last year I curated an exhibition at the Petone Settlers Museum as part of the Blumhout Foundation curatorial scheme, and uh, the exhibition I curated was about contemporary wool craft, and I was only given a tiny little space to work with, so I had, could only choose a few makers, and Stephen is someone... I'd seen some of his wool pieces on his um, Instagram profile and um, his patchworking and so I asked him if he would make a coat for the exhibition and um, a coat that happened to be my dimensions <laughs> so, so that uh, after the show uh, it would come home to me <laughs> and uh, and so that's what he did and so what he's he had accumulated quite a few 
scraps of wool from his various sewing projects over the years. He never throws anything out, and um, so these had sort of gathered in his studio, and so this gave him, him an opportunity to patchwork them all together, and he used, sort of inspired by the Korean patchworking technique called jogakpo, um, and he's also made the design of the coat in the style of the Korean um, coat, which is called a duramagi, um, and which is the sort of high collar and the tie across the chest and quite, quite shaped, curved sleeves and then a sort of wide, sort of fairly bell-shaped um, body to the um, coat. And then the arrangement is, uh, in Korea, often display coats in a flat pack flat way and so he made this beautiful torched wood stand um, to display the coat um, with its arms extended. Yeah so the reason I chose it was because I had just admired his beautiful bespoke pieces and garments and um, knew that you know one needed to be in my collection and so it was you know an absolute showstopper in the exhibition and um and I'm you know I love wearing it um I wear it as a dressing gown um because it just feels incredibly special on a cold winter evening to wrap yourself it's very heavy so in Auckland we don't tend to get much you know we don't get tend to get cold enough whether to wear a coat that's this heavy but you know, on a cold night, it's just perfect. Yeah. I think if I had that coat, I'd be going to bed at six o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Talk about the colours. Oh, yes. So, um, again, it was all just determined by what Stephen had um, and his eye for composition. So it's got beautiful blues and teals, little flashes of red and orange, and then it's got um, sort of chartreuse and, um, yeah, and, and then it's got sort of more neutral tones, um, olives and beige and pale greens, sage greens, and then it's um, lined with just a lovely sort of steel grey uh, linen, and then he has done newbie stitching, which is parallel rows of stitching all over it, um, uh, just as in, in another um, sort of Korean um, sewing detail uh, to finish it off. And then it has a woolen, a long woolen uh, sort of dark blue um, tie that you just tie across your chest. The, the colours so suit winter. They're so complimentary, just aren't they, beautiful. to the season? Just a beautiful array. Yeah, absolutely. It's my favourite sort of range of, yeah, of colours with the sort of mauves mm. and blues and reds, russets. Um, but I, for me, it was, there was something more about this. It, it, Stephen is, is one of a group of makers that I'm just incredibly excited by mm. at the moment um, who are embracing slow crafting, one-off pieces with exquisite attention to detail. Um, you'll find their works in places like um, Tour Studio. Another mm. maker I love is Joe Yen. I'm wearing a skirt by Joe Yen um, today. To a studio public record, um, Yuka O'Shaughnessy, her stable of makers have just the most exquisite. Um, she, she's got people like Brooke Georgia, uh, who's a Christchurch maker who, who just makes gorgeous, really uh, all using recycled fabrics, um, mainly with Brooke it's using um, 
the sort of frayed linings of kimonos, silk kimonos, um, and she just repurposes them into these lovely garments and collars and everything's freeform and beautiful and utterly unique. And Stephen is in that camp of, of makers. Um, just extraordinary works. And for me, you know, I mean, I'll have this forever. I know that, you know, I'll be able to repair it myself. I'll be able to fix any tears that might develop over time. Um, but, you know, just as I was saying before about, you know, I will always wear everything I have in my collection. Um, people like Vita Cochran, she's another, you know, just, again, repurposing materials in extraordinary ways. Um and, yeah, so Stephen, Vita, Joe Yen, Brooke Georgia, they're just my kind of people. I just absolutely, um, yeah, just as makers, I just, I'm so excited by what they're doing. And I think it's the new direction, sort of it's not fast fashion, it's, uh, it's you know, treasured pieces. And that idea of, um, was it Glenn Adamson who, who came up with that book, Fewer Better Things? I think really this is something that I'm learning from Stephen, from Nicola, from Vita. You know, it's about having a few objects that you absolutely treasure, that you will have forever, that have been made with such mind and heart and consideration and care, not only for the the object itself, but for, you know, just preserving, you know, materials and giving things an extra life. And, yeah, and all of these things are just incredibly important to me, yeah, as someone who sews and knits and makes things too, things that are going to last. Now time for a deep dive on Stephen Jinnell Park. Park is an intrepid maker. His pursuit of understanding the human experience and his own as a queer Korean-born New Zealander, through material and texture knows no bounds. He traverses craft disciplines to make garments, sculpture, jewellery and other accessories, homeware and shoes. In 2013, Park graduated from the Elam School of Fine Arts at the University of Auckland. After graduating, Park went overseas to work for various fashion labels, including Comme des Garçons. During these experiences, Park realised he was interested in clothing as a human phenomenon rather than the industry. The excessive waste he observed also frustrated him. Park is behind the multidisciplinary project 6x4. Park hand makes each piece for 6x4 using mainly vintage, natural dyed, repurposed or recycled materials. As Dr Bronwyn Lloyd wrote of Park's work, in a world of excess, he creates his work by being resourceful and using pre-existing materials. Park sells his pieces at Tur in Tamaki Makoto, the service depot in Te Whanganui Atara, Wellington, and Collect in Whangadei. Outside of 6x4, Park is involved in other projects, including sculpture and costume making. For Object Space's recent show of Octavia Cook's jewellery, Park sculpted limestone that he had salvaged from quake-damaged basilica into a hanok-shaped jewellery box. Park has also made costumes for Aldous Harding and Tiny Ruins music videos, and for scenes from Yellow Pearl, a theatre show by Nathan Joe. Park is currently working on costumes for A Big Room Full of Everybody's Hope by Amit Noy, 
which will premiere at the Théâtre de la Vie, Paris, in September this year. We loved meeting with Bronwyn, learning more about her craft practices and the objects she holds dear. On her fridge, she has a mantra that we could all live by. It says, know your makers. Bronwyn is a very special person as a crafter and artist herself and as a committed supporter of her contemporaries. She was even kind enough to serve us morning tea, including old-fashioned homemade jam kisses. Thank you to Bronwyn for our very first episode, and thank you very much to our listeners. To see images of the works we've talked about in this episode of Inside the Jewel Box, please see our Instagram at Inside the Jewel Box.